Welcome to Elmo's World Podcast. This is Elmo Ador Jr., your host, and we have my friend Jake Brancatella here. Uh, Jake, can, can you introduce yourself? Hey, Elmo. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Uh, <laughs> we've been having some technical difficulties, but hopefully this will work out. And uh, my name is Jake Brancatella. I am a Muslim convert from New Jersey, uh, United States. And I have a background in philosophy, and I'm currently uh, starting my PhD, master's and PhD in uh, philosophy of religion. Okay, cool. So, um, by the way, what's your PhD about, dude? And yeah, can you explain it more? Yeah, so my PhD is going to be about the Christian doctrine of the Incarnation which is uh, the doctrine that the second person of the Trinity, known as the Son, became a human being uh, in Jesus of Nazareth. So <clears throat> it's the idea that God became man. Um, and so I will, I will be evaluating this doctrine um, to see whether or not uh, any models of the incarnation can be justified biblically, uh, historically, and logically. And uh, I'll be looking at different models uh, for how they deal with certain problems that uh, are normally associated with the doctrine and see what the strengths and weaknesses are uh, with each of these models. Well, I'm um, looking forward to uh, reading the reading it when you're finished. And then, and then, uh, can you tell us um, as to how you converted from uh, maybe Catholicism into Islam? Yeah, so I was raised in a Roman Catholic uh, household. My parents and most of my family, oh, pretty much all my family, are Roman Catholic, but I would say largely nominally. They're not really uh, so much practicing in a serious way. And uh, so I went to Sunday school and all those things. But anyone who's familiar with Catholicism, I never actually was confirmed into the uh, church. <laughs> they uh, kicked me out when I was about 12 or 13 before I made what's called the confirmation, which is basically the church accepting you as a Catholic um, so then I really became disassociated with religion as a whole, although I believed in God. And eventually I met a friend, one of my best friends in high school, his name is Alex, um, who introduced me to Islam. He was a Muslim and he started talking to me about God and the Quran and which is the Muslim uh, scriptures. And eventually I said, you know what, I'm going to pick up a Quran and start reading it. And at first I was doing it uh, with the intent to refute my friend. <laughs> but uh, interestingly enough, I started reading the Quran and a lot of the doubts that I had about Christianity and Catholicism were cleared up with the Quran, at least from my perspective in that it rejected several key tenets of Christianity that uh, were always troublesome to me, such as the Trinity and the Incarnation, which I meant, just mentioned earlier, 
and also uh, salvation, the idea of Christ, uh, an innocent uh, person dying for all of the sins of the guilty. So uh, Islam rejects all three of those ideas, and uh, because of that, it made much more sense to me, and I accepted it and became Muslim around uh, 20 or 21 years old. I'm now 29, and that was about eight years ago. So that's the basic summary of how it happened. Okay. But I have a quick question, though, because if those are the three things that made you uh, convert to into Islam, uh, what what would you think about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons who would, who would did not ha- do not have those tenets as well? Um, well, the issue with the Jehovah's Witnesses are, um, although they're not Trinitarian. They believe that Christ is God with a small g, and they also believe that he's Michael the Archangel. Um, now, there are, other, there are other forms of Unitarian Christian, but uh, and, and what I'm going to say might be a little controversial along, amongst uh, my Muslim brothers and sisters, is that I believe that the Bible, specifically the New Testament, at least in some places, does actually teach the notion that Jesus Christ, uh, peace be upon him, was God. Although I don't believe that, but I think the Bible does teach that in the New Testament in several places. And so because of that, it would be difficult for me to be a Bible-believing Christian like a Jehovah's Witness and or some kind of form of Unitarian Christianity and be able to reconcile that with the texts that speak about Christ as God. So, but uh, then your your conversion to Islam uh, still uh, shows that you still hold your belief in a monotheistic God, right? So you were looking for something that answered the, the right questions with the right answers. Yeah, I guess the difference um, between where I'm at now as a Muslim believing in the Quran versus a Unitarian Christian with the Bible is that I think that I can consistently interpret the Quran in a correct and traditional manner, uh, um, being completely in line with strict monotheism of God not being three persons. But I see that is more difficult to do uh, given the Christian scriptures of the New Testament. So I guess that's why I would say it's uh, it makes much more sense to be a uh, monotheist, a Unitarian in a um, Islamic paradigm rather than a Christian paradigm. Okay. So uh, and so you believed in the Quran and Muhammad may peace be upon him and uh, this brought you into the sect which is the Quran only type of Muslims. Yes. So when I first became Muslim, going back to my story about my my friend Alex for a moment, is um, I was very ignorant. I didn't know much about the religion. So, as I said, when I first started reading the Quran, it was to try to refute it. Um, Now, I had the difficulty that my friend, when we would have discussions, 
after I told him, you know, I believe in the Quran, I, I want to be a Muslim, etc., he would say things to me that uh, didn't make sense and that I couldn't find uh, references for them in the Quran. So I would ask him and he'd say, oh, yeah, it's in the Quran. I'd say, oh, where is it? And he many times wouldn't be able to follow it. Well, eventually what happened was he said, oh, well, there's this other thing called hadith that we have. And we're supposed to follow that too. So maybe some of what I'm saying is from the hadith. And I said, oh, wow, that's interesting. I never heard about that. So I started researching it. And I said to myself, well, uh, a lot of things in the hadith literature didn't make sense. Some of them seem to be contradicting what the Quran said about certain issues. And um, I didn't see any reason or necessity for following the hadith. I thought that I could just follow the Quran alone. So I started doing some research and Google searching to find out um, if there were any other Muslims like me that just believed in the Quran. So uh, by doing that, I first came across Rashad Khalifa, who was a famous Quran-only proponent. Um, He's also known for finding the quote-unquote Miracle 19 theory in the Quran. And I, I started reading his work, and he's actually dead now. He was assassinated in, I think, the 90s. Um, but one of his uh, colleagues, Edip Yüksel, who's from Turkey, uh, is alive, and he's still a big proponent of Quran onlyism today. So I, then I got into his work, and I started reading his books, and... Um, yeah, so then I was in Quran onlyism for about seven or eight years, and only within the last two years, about a year and a half ago, I transitioned from being Quran only to more of a traditional uh, Sunni perspective, and that which means that I accept the Sunnah of the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, which is composed. Uh, partly in the Hadith literature. So, yeah, the difference between the two camps is Quran-only-ism feels that um, we can restrict the religion purely just to the Quran, whereas Sunnis and even the Shia uh, believe that the Prophet, peace be upon him himself, was a source of law and that his behavior, actions, deeds you know, and silent approvals um, compose another body of work, which is encapsulated in this Hadith literature that we are supposed to follow. So that's the difference between the traditionalist Sunni and Shia perspective uh, versus the Quran only uh, paradigm. And so, um, but what specifically made you uh, feel that the Quran only uh, types of Muslim are in the wrong, especially when learning about Sunnah or the Hadiths. Yeah, so one of the problems was, um, well, let's see, about a year and a half ago or so, I started talking to uh, Brother Yahya, which you you know, 
and a few of the other brothers that you're familiar with, uh, Sharif, uh, that you also interviewed previously, and started talking to them, and they brought up some points that I, I couldn't have an answer to. Uh, if I, And I, I had to be honest with myself. One of them is in chapter two of the Quran. It's uh, verses 143 and 144 which talks about the Qibla, which is the direction of prayer for the Muslims. And in verse 143, uh, I'm just going to briefly read it in English. It says, and we did not make the Qibla, we did not make that which you um, used to be on, the Qibla, that, except that we might distinguish him who follows the messenger from him who turns back upon his heels. And then the next verse says, um, we shall surely make the master of the Qibla, which you like, turn your face towards the sacred mosque, which is uh, in Arabic is Al-Masjid Al-Haram, which is thought of to be the house in uh, Mecca in Saudi Arabia. And so <clears throat> the issue, just to try to make it simple for people, although it, may, it is complicated, uh, the first verse is in, in 143 is talking about a previous Qibla, previous direction of prayer that uh, the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his companions were following. Um, the second verse mentions now that uh, God in the Quran is instructing them to change from one Qibla to the second Qibla, which is Masjid al-Haram, which is the one that all Muslims face uh, five times a day for our daily prayers. Um, the issue is that from a Quran-only perspective, the question comes, what was the first Qibla or what was the first direction of prayer for the Prophet, peace be upon him, and the other Muslims at that time? Now, there's no reference in the Quran that I could find, and I put out a challenge to the other Quran-only Muslims to try to answer it, as to number one, where was the prophet, peace be upon him, told to follow whatever that first Qibla was? And secondly, what actually was that first Qibla? Because the difficulty is that if we're going to say that we are supposed to only follow the Quran and the prophet, peace be upon him, was also, well, why was he following this first Qibla if there's no mention of it in the Quran. So there's only, there's really only three options. One, um, either the prophet received other revelation, which is uh, outside of the Quran, which is a traditional Sunni answer to it. Uh, number two, um, the answer is in the Quran, but I just didn't find it, which I don't see that. Or, or number three, that um, the prophet, peace be upon him, just made this up himself, meaning that he just uh, started following a certain Qibla without a command from God to do so. Um, the issue is that for the Quran-only person, that really isn't an acceptable answer because their position is that not only are we supposed to simply follow whatever the Quran says, but secondly, that whatever the Quran is silent about, we can't just make things up, including the prophet himself, peace be upon him. So if they don't have that answer available to them, and they can't give us an answer 
from the Quran to show uh, where the Prophet was told to do this and what that first Qibla or direction of prayer actually was, then the only answer left, which seems uh, like it's the correct answer to me now, is that the Prophet, peace be upon him, received other what we call wahi or revelation from God that was separate and distinct from the Quran itself. And so that, for this, uh, from this issue, it has led me to conclude that the revelation that the Prophet received was not restricted to only the Quran. He received the Quran and other revelation from God. And so <clears throat> because of that, and there's some other issues where the same phenomenon seems to be occurring, uh, for that reason, I left Quran onlyism and concluded that the prophet received other revelation. And, uh, and so his authority was not merely in the Quran. It was that he received other relations from God and of some, some of which are contained in the Hadith literature. Okay. Well, now that we're talking about, for example, uh, the other scriptural authorities in the, in the Islam, um, do you think that the Hadiths is part of the Sunnah? Or, and can you um, establish your understanding of the credentials of the Sunnah, like, for example, the Sirah and other scriptures? Yeah, so in the case of, um, I have to mention that, first of all, there are typically uh, four uh, dominant, uh, what we would call, um, uh, schools in Islam as far as jurisprudence or uh, law schools, right? So you have the Hanafi school, the Maliki school, the Shafi'i school, and the Hanbali school. And these schools um, get their names from four imams or uh, four um, leaders at their time who became popular for what we call their fiqh or their, um, their legal theories about how, uh, and it gets very complicated, but um, about how rulings are derived from text, what sort of evidences do we accept, what do we not accept, what is the hierarchy of um, evidence in these schools, and they differed slightly um, on these different issues. So I'm just mentioning that to explain what a legal school is. I, since becoming a Sunni, subscribe to the Maliki school. Now, um, these schools are in, in Arabic are called madhabs or madhahib. Um, <clears throat> and the, the difference, when, like when I say I'm Maliki, it means that I follow the usul or the legal principles of Imam Malik himself. Um, and so we are able to even at times disagree with the imams uh, about their opinion, but we don't disagree with their principles. And so <clears throat> the reason why I'm mentioning this is because Imam Malik's approach to the sunnah and hadith was quite unique amongst the four schools. And that is because the Maliki school is uh, 
only one of two of the four schools that makes a distinction, a clear distinction between Sunnah and Hadith. Now the differences that we would say as Malikis that the Sunnah can be encapsulated in Hadith literature, but it's not limited to Hadith literature. We also have the concept of the living tradition, the, the what we would call like the lived sunnah, so that um, the sunnah isn't passed down merely through books of hadith, but that it was also passed down through the traditions, specifically the traditions of the people of Medina. And so... What we, what we would like to imagine is if we go back to the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, Medina is where he passed away. It's where many of his companions stayed even after his death. And so uh, the idea is that the Prophet ta taught many of his companions uh, the, you know, the legal rulings on certain things and how to, you know, how to... Um, you know, like how to perform rituals and different things like that. And that many of the companions stayed in the city of Medina after he passed away. They then in turn taught their children and the generation after them and so on. So there was this kind of, uh, at least this is the idea from the Maliki school, that there was a lived tradition that was passed down from generation to generation specifically the first three generations, which Imam Malik is part of the first three generations. And so, and then he, we don't think that he brought anything new. He just kind of systematized and crystallized the methodology of uh, his predecessors in his city. And so, um, now how does this relate to Hadith? It relates to Hadith because of what I said, that Sunnah is not limited to Hadith for us, whereas for the Shafi'is and the Hanbalis, it is. And the Hanafis, it's not, although I would argue they don't really have a mechanism in the way that we do with what we call the Amal of Ahl al-Medina, which means the, the works or the deeds of the people of Medina, which is what I talked about as far as the lived tradition. We take the lived tradition of the people of Medina, the practice of the people of Medina, specifically the scholars of Medina in the first three generations, we take that as a source of law that is even above the Hadith literature. Okay, so for example, Imam Malik is very clear that if a Hadith contradicts a, uh, a practice of the people of Medina that is well-established, he will take the, the amal of the people of Medina, the actions of the people of Medina above the hadith itself. So it's a means of um, rejecting hadith in that sense. Now, this, uh, this idea um, is not held within the Shafi'i and the Hanbali school. And they are very, have a strict kind of literalist approach. I mean, uh, Imam Shafi'i is known for saying that, um, you know, if the, if the hadith is sahih, which means if a hadith is 
um, judged to be authentic by its chain, then we implement it, then we, um, we accept it. It's part of our school. Imam Malik did not have this position. So it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a huge difference in that sense. Um, what else can I say about it? I don't want to go on too much. So I might want to have you come in and ask some questions here. Okay. So and the, I so there are four like the Maliki, the Hanabi, Hanafi, and the Shafi'i. Uh, I assume that you're a Maliki, right? Okay. So in a way, when the the hadiths are encapsulate in, encapsulate some of the Sunnah, but that the Sunnah is not limited to the hadiths. Um, how do you determine which part of the Sunnah is part of the Hadiths and which part is not part of the Hadiths? Yeah, good question. So I'll give you a famous example of that. Uh, the Muslims who listen to this sh should know. Um, there, was a, uh, there was a student of Abu Hanifa <clears throat> who, was, who came a little bit before Imam Malik. He's a little bit older. One of his students came to Medina and he saw that, um, you know, see, when, the, when Muslims make prayer, uh, before that we make prayer, we have to perform like a, uh, a ritual washing. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, in English, the term he uses ablution, but I don't really like the term. But it's kind of a ritual um, purification with water or in the case of when you don't have water, you can use uh, something natural from the earth. Anyway. So in the case of the water, uh, especially back in those times, and it's still used in uh, traditional remote areas in the world today, we don't really use it much in the U.S., but there was a device that was like a little bowl um, where it would be used uh, to pour, you, you know, we would put water in there, and that device would be used to uh, to um, make the ritual purification before prayer, okay? Now, um, there was a discrepancy over what the size or what amount of water should be used uh, for this ritual purification. So when one of uh, Abu Hanifa's students came, um, came to Medina, the city of the Prophet, peace be upon him, um, he was questioning, he saw that the people there, he felt that they were using um, the size of the bowl was, was incorrect. And it was based on a hadith. And he was basically saying, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm just trying to summarize the story quickly, that um, it was basically explaining that they had this wrong. And he was basing it on a hadith. And Imam Malik, and he, he said to Imam Malik, well, don't you know about this hadith? And he, he told him the hadith. He says, yes, of course. He says, well, you know, basically the assumption is why aren't you following it? So he asked one of the, um, uh, one of the people there, he said, hey, uh, go and get me uh, what you use to perform the ablution, to perform the ritual uh, cleansing. And so the guy brought back the instrument and showed it to him. And he brought it right in front of this guy who was asking this question. And he, and Imam Malik said to him, uh, where did you get that from? And he said, I got it from my father. And where did your father get it from? 
He got it. He had. He got it from his father. It was passed down. And who was his father? His father was one of the companions of the prophet, peace be upon him. So this is an example. And and Imam Malik basically just looked at him and said, "Look, this is what we take." And so the point of the story is that this is an example of a lived tradition of a literal literal instrument that was passed down from the time of the prophet that the people of Medina were using. And even though the uh, student of Abu Hanifa had a hadith that was supposedly from the prophet, peace be upon him, it contradicted what they knew in the city of the prophet. So what he said, we take this as a bigger proof over a hadith that you got that is supposedly from the prophet. So the point of the story is that the amal of the people of Medina was taken to be a stronger proof than a hadith uh, that was supposedly from the prophet. And there's a very famous statement. Um, there's a very famous statement that's made about taking uh, single chain narration hadiths. Um, and the idea is that because uh, in hadith, there's two types of hadith. We have what's known as mutawatir hadith and ahad ahadith, which means the mutawatir means so many people narrated it that basically it's impossible for it to be a lie. And it's usually used like the example of I've never been to China. I don't know if you've ever been to China. Many people have never been to China. But so many people have narrated about the existence of China that it would be absurd to say that it was a lie. Like it would be such a grand conspiracy theory. So the idea with hadith is that there's two categories. The first category of mutawatir is that it reaches that level that it's almost impossible or inconceivable that it would be a lie. That's how many people narrated it. Uh, a very small number of hadith actually fit in that category. The other category of hadith is known as ahad hadith, which means one, a single um, narrator is narrating this. And it could be more than one, but it, it doesn't reach the level that I expressed with the previous category. The majority, the vast overwhelming majority of hadith fall into this category. And so um, Speaking of the hadith that I just mentioned about how much water one should use, um, Imam Malik is famous for um, giving this statement. And he said, and I quote, uh, 1,000 transmitting from 1,000 is preferable to me than one transmitting from one. For one transmitting from one would tear the sunnah right out of our hands. So in, in the example of, for example, you have all these people in Medina that are using this device for water who they inherited from their um, parents and their grandparents who are companions of the prophet. And you're coming here with a hadith that is just transmitted from one person to one person. He's saying there's no comparison. You have thousands of people compared to the saying of, of one. And so because of that, he sees that has much more epistemic weight rather than merely an ahad hadith that is from one from one. 
And so he he's worried not only that we, sh we shouldn't accept those when they contradict the Amal, but we should be very hesitant to accept them because if we do, he says, the Sunnah can be snatched right out of our hands. So he's very careful about which Hadith he accepts and which he doesn't. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in a way, um, because you're, 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 you're a Maliki, you only abide by the uh, Mutawata Hadiths, but in, in terms of the Ahadati Hadiths, you treat them very differently and, and very skeptically because of the the reliability of one person. Um, no, well, Imam Malik does accept Ahad Hadith. He does accept them, but the difference is, uh, and even Abu, Abu Hanifa, they don't accept them as what we would say an independent source of law. So, um, uh, for example, when they talk about this in, in the Usul books or the principles of the um, uh, ju uh, jurisprudence, is the, the differences of Abu Hanifa and Imam Malik did not accept them as an independent source of law. In order, in fact, they regarded them to be uh, the weakest and least authoritative sources and principles of law to which they accepted. You see, so they did accept them, but they regarded them as the weakest source of law in, in Islam. Um, also, and, and this is as opposed to the Shafi'i school and the Hanbali school, they accepted them outright as, as an independent source of law. So in the case with the Malikis, they accept isolated hadith, but only as a dependent source of law. They had to be used in conjunction with other ancillary sources. So like, for example, when, we, when I brought up the story, if you had a hadith that matched with the practices of the people of Medina that was well known, it would be accepted, but at, as if it's dependent and is, is uh, corroborated by this other source. Or if, the, if it was a hadith that matched what the Quran says, it has to be matched with other already established sources and principles. You see, it's not an independent source in that sense. And that's why Imam Shafi'i, who was actually a student of Imam Malik for a brief period, he writes in his famous critique of Imam Malik, which is called Ikhtilaf Malik, which means basically the differences between him and Imam Malik. The main key difference is that Imam Shafi'i accepted hadith as an independent source of law. So it didn't need to be matched up with anything else that they already knew uh, or that uh, or other sources that they accepted, it was sufficient in and of itself. And Imam Malik did not accept that position. So that's the main difference between the two. So um, a had yeah, so a hadith has to be judged basically on three principles to see whether or not it matches. First of all, can't contradict the Quran. It can't contradict an Islamic principle. And it cannot contradict an already established sunnah. So like in the case of, of what, the, what I was talking about, the instrument that they were using for the water, if a hadith contradicts that, we don't accept it because it's an already established sunnah that has a higher weight than this hadith that's being brought that's only ahad.
So, um, but it's interesting because um, you never mentioned any divine inspiration, but or like similar to the Bible. But I guess that would only apply to the Quran, right? But other scriptures are simply more of a, a human writing and wisdom. No, not merely. Like, uh, for example, the the example I gave from the Quran, we believe that uh, the Messenger, peace be upon him did receive other revelation besides the Quran. We believe that he did, excuse me, he did receive other wahi or revelation apart from the Quran. And some of that is found in the Hadith books. And, um, uh, you know, other of it is encapsulated in the Sunnah that's not in the Hadith books. Like, for example, the idea of how much water to use. See, there's two, there's two different things. We believe that the Prophet, peace be upon him, received the Qur'an. We believe that he also received other revelation besides the Qur'an. And then, thirdly, uh, the majority of Sunnis also believe that he was an independent lawgiver, that he had the authority from God, even apart being uh, told directly from God what to do, to legislate certain things and give rulings on certain matters. So we believe the Quran is, you know, in a class of its own. And then the other revelation that the prophet received and also his uh, legislative uh, authority that was bore out in the Sunnah, those two things are found in the Sunnah. And some of which are found in Hadith books. So yes, we do actually believe that the um, the Hadith books uh, do have some of this other revelation that he received, but not all of it is uh, like divine revelation in that way. It has the words of men and other people, history and other things in it. And um, when my question is because um, there's a great divide in Sunni and Shia, right? But um, I, I, can you clarify um, the specific differences or, or schools that most Shia hold? Uh, are they mostly Shayafi or, or Hanabali? I, I forgot. Can you clarify? Okay, yeah, so the difference between the Sunnis and the Shia, uh, the main difference, there are theological differences, but the main difference of how it started was a political difference. After the Prophet, peace be upon him, died, um, there were dissenting views about who should become the Khalifa or the successor, the leader of the Muslims after he died. Okay, there were a group who wanted it to be Abu Bakr, who actually wound up being the first Khalifa after the Prophet, peace be upon him. And there were others who felt that it should be Ali. And so um, it goes back all the way to this political issue. Ali uh, um, actually became a Khalifa, but he was the, the fourth Khalifa. And the Shia... Um, differ with the Sunnis in the sense that they believe that Imam Ali was the greatest companion uh, 
of the prophet, peace be upon him. And they prefer him and think that he should have been the first leader after the prophet, peace be upon him, died. Now, it didn't go that way. And still, and, and, and still up until this day, uh, they have that difference. And then, you know, after that, there are other key theological differences, but that's the main basis of how it all began. Yeah, and so um, what are the main theological differences? Because I've seen a lot of videos of Shia uh, uh, leaders who claim that Sunnis will, are like unbelievers or will go to hell. Is that really the mainstream belief of Shia? Um, I don't think so. I think that, uh, see, we have a difference in our tradition. We make a distinction between somebody who's a deviant and somebody who's a disbeliever. So the main the mainstream uh, Sunni position, uh, at least as far as I'm aware, is that we would not generally declare the Shia to be kafir or disbelievers, um, but we would say that uh, they're deviants or that they may be misguided in some sense. It depends upon the person, whether or not they're a layman or a scholar. We make that distinction. And also, each person has to be dealt with individually. You know, what sort of beliefs do they hold? How problematic are the beliefs? So I don't think it's fair to give just a one-size-fits-all determination about each group. That's at least how I see it. I think that's the appropriate uh, way to deal with different groups. Okay. And, um, you know, I've been uh, very curious as to um, your what your ideas are on the miraculous nature of the Quran. Um, I've heard about this from uh, other Muslim friends. Um, can, can you explain it to me? Yeah, so uh, I see that in the groups le- recently, there has been a lot of talk amongst the Muslims about the uh, miraculous nature of the Quran. Um, I mean, I must confess, it's not uh, it's not a subject that I'm an expert on in any way. So I can only speak about it in uh, a very surface level fashion. But um, you see, the Quran makes an interesting uh, interesting challenge. I think it's in chapter 17, verse 88 of the Quran. And uh, let me just wait, see if I can pull it up here and read it real quick. Uh, it says, say, it's telling the prophet, peace be upon him, to say, if men and jinn, and jinn are a, uh, another type of creature, if men and jinn should combine together to bring the like of this Quran, they could not bring the like of it, though some of them were aiders of others. So it's basically a challenge saying that the Quran cannot be imitated. Now, the whole question is, then, in what sense can the Quran not be imitated? And there was a difference of opinion uh, amongst the scholars about what it actually referred to. I think, and uh, this is just, as I said, I'm not an expert on the subject. But I think that the majority took the view or took the opinion that the, the way in which the Quran couldn't be imitated 
referred to its linguistic or literary feature, that it was like a masterpiece of Arabic writing, okay? Um, others, especially modern in the modern times, think that there are scientific miracles in the Quran um, and, things, and things like that. I don't really take that view. I, I take the view, I think, of the majority in this case, that it refers mainly to uh, linguistic and literary uh, miracles. And I think uh, part of the proof for this is you have to understand that the pre-Islamic Arabs were very much interested into uh, poetry, you see. And um, I don't know how much you know about the Quran's writing style, but it's very unique. But in many, uh, in many chapters, especially in the small surahs, um, it has kind of a rhythmic tone to it. Uh, I don't know if you've heard uh, Muslims reciting the Quran before. It has sort of like a rhythmic tone and the words, usually the ending words of the verses rhyme many times. And so even uh, t today and historically uh, amongst the, the Arabs at that time, they were shocked, like they, they even admitted uh, a couple centuries after the prophet, peace be upon him, that uh, they couldn't produce, and, and many tried to produce an Arabic um, text uh, equivalent to the Quran's kind of uh, mastery of the Arabic language, okay? And um, there are many Oriental, uh, Orientalist scholars today who have agreed with that and written about it. Um, so that's the position that I take, that the miracle uh, being referred to in the way that the Quran can't be reproduced is referring to its linguistic and uh, literary features. Um, but it would be difficult for me to really explain that to you because um, I think that your knowledge of Arabic is... Um, pretty limited and I myself am only uh, I can read and write fluently in Arabic but as far as being conversant in it I'm I'm pretty elementary so it would be difficult for me to you know express that in a way that you would be able to grasp and fully understand but uh, <laughs> I hope my explanation makes some sense to you and the other listeners uh, and you can kind of investigate it from there. You know, the difficulty is that in order to really appreciate it, at least by the view that I'm giving, one would really have to study Arabic, especially classical Arabic, and understand it to, to see, you know, it's kind of like, and, and this is a bad analogy, I, I should say, but it's kind of like Shakespeare, right? Shakespeare was such an amazing writer um, according to, <laughs> to like, you know, historians and people who judge these things. But if you didn't really understand English, let alone old English style of writing, you couldn't really appreciate Shakespeare's works, right? So it would be hard for you or um, the other listeners to really appreciate the Quran's um, uh, linguistic elements of it without understanding deeply the Arabic or the language that's being used. And th that sounded very um, convincing actually, you know, and um, I've uh, heard this argument a lot, but, and, and um, I'm really curious because 
Um, other than the Quran, I guess that one of the uh, most basic beliefs in Islam is belief in God, right? And I, you seem to be a very philosophical person, Jake. And um, in terms of philosophy, uh, why do you believe in God? Yeah, so I mentioned before that the Quran itself, at least for me, um, had a much more palatable view than the Christian conception of God. And that's mainly because of Surat al-Ikhlas, which um, refers to purification or sincerity. It's uh, the 112th chapter of the Quran, and it has just four small verses, but every Muslim knows it. Um, I'm just going to recite it in Arabic and explain the meaning. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قل هو الله أحد الله الصمد لم يلد ولم يولد ولم يكون له كفوا أحد and uh, I don't know if you can tell but even within this small chapter the the words that are being used rhyme in kind of the ending of the verses so that's part of what I was referring to before um, anyway uh, the first verse says say he, God, is one, or Allah is one. Allah is on whom all depend. He's the eternal. He's like the necessary being. He begets not, nor is he begotten. So that's a direct like refutation of the Christian conception that Christ was God, and yet somehow he's begotten. And the fourth verse is, and there's none like him. So it's a very simple, or what's, what claims to be a very simple picture of who God is, He's completely and uniquely one. He doesn't depend on anything. He's not born and he doesn't give birth to things. And there's nothing like him. He can't be compared to in that sense. So um, for me, philosophically, this conception of God made much more sense than the Christian idea of the Trinity or the incarnation. And so that's why I was originally attracted to Islam. Um, so that's kind of my basic idea of who God is comes from this uh, this text. Now you mentioned something about like philosophically, you know, why do I believe in God? Um, I'm wondering, are you looking for a specific argument for the existence of God, or what? What were you thinking about? Well, um, the specific ones, like maybe Kalam or the contingency argument. Uh, Pascal, so what, what, whatever uh, philosophical arguments you believe in? Yeah, I mean, I support the Kalam cosmological argument. I also like the um, argument from contingency. Um, these are the main arguments that were used in the Islamic tradition. Um, what else? Uh, the argument from design, although I'm you know, <laughs> a little more skeptical to use simplistic versions of that. But, uh, I mean, let's start with the Kalam cosmological argument because <clears throat> it's become popular today, especially from William Lane Craig, who is a Christian philosopher, and he dubbed it the Kalam cosmological argument because Kalam, it comes from the Arabic word, which simply means word, uh, but it refers to the sort of Islamic uh, theology or uh, philosophical tradition of uh, what we call the mutakallimun, the, the people of Kalam, the scholars of Kalam. And Imam uh, Ghazali, who was a medieval thinker, Islamic thinker, 
uh, is well known for giving a robust version of the argument and which is where uh, Craig got a lot of his inspiration from and that's why he gave it this name. And so, I mean, the basic idea is this, uh, premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. And then uh, much more would need to be said about what exactly that cause is, what sort of attributes it has, but the eventual conclusion that it is the God of uh, theism, you know, and it's compatible, I would say, with Christianity, Islam, uh, Judaism, the main kind of monotheistic tra uh, traditions. So that's the general idea. Um, now, if you want, we can go through premise one and premise two and the conclusion as far as what are the evidences uh, for them and why I think that they carry a lot of weight in the discussion of whether or not God exists. Is that something you want to do? or? Yeah, and um, I, I guess that um, I just, in a way, w want to understand your, why you believe in God, you know? And it... And, I guess that you could argue from a philosophical perspective, but I guess that being uh, a person of faith, I would assume that in a way you also have emotional tendencies to, for your belief in God, you know? Um, I mean, there is definitely an element of faith or spirituality involved, but uh, me, <laughs> I at least try to pride myself on being a logical person. Um, in fact, in the, uh, I explained before about the different, um, uh, schools of Islamic jurisprudence. We also have different schools of Islamic theology, and there are three main schools. It's the Ashari, uh, school, the Maturidi school, and what's called the Athari school, or like modern day Salafi, uh, kind of traditionalist. There's different names that are given for it, um. Um, I'm mainly more in line with the Ashari and Maturidi school, in which these schools say that you're actually not allowed. I mean, the, the, the overall uh, opinion of the schools is that it's, it's haram or prohibited to make what we call taqlid in aqidah. So there are two main uh, parts of Islam. Uh, you have aqidah and you have fiqh. Uh, and then you have Ihsan, um, which is kind of like spirituality. But in Aqidah, which refers to like our beliefs, what do we actually believe are true about God and the prophets and things like that, we're not allowed to make what's called taqlid or uh, blind following of, of uh, you know, a scholar or what somebody else says or what somebody else thinks. Our arguments or our beliefs must be rationally justified they mu or they must have some kind of uh, textual basis for them uh, we can't just blindly follow it you just can't just be born into it and just believe it that sort of faith is not really accepted in in our schools so any belief that i hold about god um, uh, i try to have a rational justification for it or a textual textual basis for these ideas. Um, so I would argue that um, uh, this sort of notion of blind following and kind of blind faith 
is not something that's really uh, looked at positively in, in the tradition that uh, I follow as far as Islamic theology goes. I see. Okay. So I guess I'm guessing that you're a Salafi, right? Or am I or am I no, 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 no. I'm definitely not a Salafi. <laughs> uh, like I said, I'm 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 Maliki and Fiqh. When it comes to when it comes to Aqidah, as I said, you have the different schools. I tend to be a mixture of the three schools, Maturidi, uh, Ashari, and um, Athari or Salafi. I tend to be a mixture, but if I had to say which school I follow the most, as of right now, it would be the Maturidi school. I feel it's the most rational school of the three, and it has the uh, least amount of problems associated with it. Um, but I don't blindly accept anything from any three of them. Uh, I judge them each on an individual basis about specific uh, issues. Wow, this has been uh, quite informative and educational, and I've uh, d dug deep into Islam, you know. And um, I'm really curious as to, for example, in your daily life, um, what has being a Muslim changed in your behavior, in your normal thought process compared to when you were, let's say, Catholic? Yeah, as far as how does it affect my behavior, uh, I like to think that it's made me a better person. I try to be a better person. Of course, I, I fall short many times, probably every day of, of, of doing that. But um, as far as praying, as far as uh, engaging in, uh, I find a lot of solace, for example, in reciting the Quran and I'm working on memorizing the Quran, uh, reciting the Quran in prayer, uh, doing these sort of activities, um, you know, just for lack of a better way to explain it, make you feel good. Um, and I like to think that uh, it affects my behavior in a positive way. I mean, the Quran is very clear. You have to be just with people. Uh, the prophet said, like, part of his sunnah is simply just to smile at people when you see them. All of these little things uh, should affect your behavior. And if they're not, you're doing something wrong. So <clears throat> I think that's very clear. Okay. Cool. And um, Jake, I just want to ask you one last question because it's been great talking to you. And the question is, um, what advice would you give to someone who's actually interested in learning more about the Quran and Islam? And what path should they take in order to stray away from uh, wrong dogma? You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say if it's a non-Muslim, I would recommend reading the Quran, um, preferably with somebody who is a Muslim that has experience in the, Ar um, the Arabic language because they're going to be limited to the translation, which could be problematic at certain times. But if they don't, of course, they can pick it up and, and try to find a good translation. Um, besides that, I recommend reading... Um, some biographies on the prophet, peace be upon him's life. Um, see whether or not you feel uh, that his character is something that's admirable and uh, noteworthy. And yeah, I would say try to speak to other Muslims in your community. 
see what they're all about. I mean, there's obviously a lot of stuff on the media of Muslims being terrorists and bad people and they hate America and all that. Uh, I would say that that's for the majority is not really true. So try to, you know, engage with them, see that they're just normal humans like everybody else. They might have different beliefs. Um, you know, try to understand better about what they actually believe. And I hope that this podcast will serve as a means of, of doing that, trying to explain what uh, general Muslim beliefs are all about, you know, that we believe in God, we believe in one God, we believe in the prophets, we believe in Jesus and all these prophets that are well known in the West. And we believe in being good to humanity and, and everybody and so, yeah, just try to talk and communicate with Muslims in your community. Uh, try to read a Quran and, you know, study with a Muslim, um, learn about their religion and faith. And also, yeah, definitely check out some biographies written on the Prophet. There's a lot of them uh, in English that are easily accessible. And, um, you know, think about it for yourself whether or not this is a person worthy of following. I obviously think that the prophet peace be upon him is that he's the uh, best character. Uh, he has the best character for us to imitate and follow and yeah, take it from there. So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. Thank you.